Okay. Anybody here? <laughs> we're here, we're here. We, uh, we've arrived at the end of our journey. We are at the uh, last section of the book that we've been exploring, 2 Corinthians. And uh, so this is the last message of the book. It's always kind of sad to close out this study, uh, a study that we've been in for quite a while. It's like a friend. And, uh, you know, we put a lot of time into this book, and we certainly uh, hope it's been edifying, that it's been building us up as we study God's Word. I'd trust that this would become a part of our lives. And so we've seen the heart of Paul, and uh, we've seen his inner thoughts as he has defended himself. And he's defended the ministry, and um, he actually has defended the gospel is really what uh, the ultimate is about. The main issue is that uh, they were listening to the false apostles. They were attacking Paul personally, and they were attacking doctrinally. And matter of fact, it's amazing that they would actually give the time of the day to these guys that came in there. You know, they... They were so well instructed by Paul. Why would they accept these things that were being brought in? And Paul brings evidence after evidence after evidence all throughout. And now we have seen that there's no need to bring any more evidence that's been brought forth. It's there. And he had challenged the Corinthians to examine themselves, if you remember, in 13.5, to see if they were in the faith. To examine to see if they're in the faith. He really believed that they were true believers. They needed to test themselves. Even believers need to test themselves. There might have been some that were not believers. Paul didn't want to come there and with all their atrocious sins that they might have had and to discipline them severely. He didn't want to do that. And he wanted to come there and he wanted to see that they did no wrong and that they were right in what they did. So he wanted to rejoice. He wanted to rejoice with them. And we've been saying that this morning, singing about it and talking about it and in our prayers and such. Rejoice. He wants to build them up and not tear them down. And we saw that in the very last verse that we were at last week. And so it's talking about pastoral care here. He continues with exhortation after exhortation. He's been doing exhortations and now he is there. And we're on the very last section. And what are those? Um, What are those exhortations? Well, he gives really a general summary here of everything. A summary of really what all this is, is about. It's a troubled church at Corinth. They're very troubled. He summarizes the concern of the church as he gets into this last one. And he's not concerned about even their prosperity. He's not even concerned about their health, physical health, their success, their freedom, their honor, the the prestige that they would have. And yes, those things are good. He would be concerned, but that is not what this is all about ultimately. Because there's something better. Yes, we should be concerned with all those little elements and, and major elements in people's lives. But there's something better that He desires and prays for. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. And um, that that's the focus. So why don't we pick up our Bibles and read these last few verses in this particular book. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice... 
Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, thank You. As we look at these exhortations, may they be a part of our lives and that we are exhorted on things that we already know, but yet we need to be reminded. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Your Son's name, Amen. Amen. Well, he starts this section with finally, brethren. And what's that mean? Exactly what it is. It's a wrap-up. It's a wrap-up. This is, this is it. Uh, very powerful exhortations, and it seems like it's boom, 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 staccatos, you know? One after another, and it seems like they're not even related as he goes from one verse to the other, but actually they are. And they're meant to build up. Remember that he came, he was coming to build up and not tear down. To build up. So he sums this up with finally, with five exhortations. And it is for congregational unity and harmony uh, that they would have. The Corinthians were lacking that. And so this is what he closes with. These exhortations are really magnificent. Even as short as this little section is, Tremendously magnificent. So he says, finally, brethren, and that's a nice endearing term, brethren, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, and then he says, rejoice. Isn't that interesting? We've been hearing that word this morning, haven't we? And we sang a song dealing with rejoice, prayer dealing with rejoicing. Speak of that. And it is so key in our lives. It's a fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and we'll see that word peace in here also, along with the love. Rejoice. Karete is uh, the original word there. And it's really a, a typical form of uh, greeting. It's like hi and even goodbye. That's really what that word would mean to a Greek reader. Karete. It's like what we say is, hey, how you doing? Hi. Uh, farewell. Uh, it definitely meant all hail. Hail. Remember when Jesus said that so many times? Hail, favored one. And even those kind of thoughts. Uh, It actually is a greeting because of what Jesus had said. It means to rejoice, though, really. That is the great translation there. Even though it's a greeting here. All hail. Whenever Jesus said that, He was really saying... Rejoice. When did He say that? We said it a number of times, but there was, uh, you can think of the resurrection. All hail. When He came out of the grave and He greeted the disciples, what did He say? All hail. Rejoice. I can't think of anything better to rejoice than the resurrection of a dead man. (laughs) Rejoice. So that became the Christian greeting when, when people would see each other. They would use karete. Spoke Greek. Hi. Whenever they left, said farewell. Karete. Hello, goodbye. I think that's pretty fascinating. So he says here, rejoice. 
You don't have anything to be gloomy about at all. You have every reason to rejoice. Paul uses this term often, or this idea, rejoice, be glad. I think we sing that song, be glad, right? Be glad. Uh, Look in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, and we get a commandment here. Command, you all know that this is very familiar. For for rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. We have no other thing to do than rejoice. Because he says always, and then First Thessalonians chapter five, verse sixteen. Rejoice always. He doesn't repeat it there. Again, I say rejoice, right? He just says rejoice always. Now, this is interesting, this rejoice, as he starts off this finally, brethren, rejoice or carete, this is coming at the head of what is a series of exhortations that's coming up as be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, right? Starts it off with this rejoice. Be happy, cheer up, right? It's interesting because this is a real troubled, dysfunctional, if we can use a modern term for that today, a dysfunctional church. That's what it was. If Paul had threatened to bring in church discipline, you remember, just a few verses back, uh, he told them to examine themselves. I mean, he's been serious through this, hasn't he? And so he says, examine your conversion to see if you're really, really true in the faith. And then he says, rejoice. Now, do you find that kind of curious? After he's been so serious that he says, rejoice. They're bickering, they're divisions, they're difficulties. First Corinthians, boy, it deals with that. The factions and the divisions that they had in Corinth. Why does he say this? Why does he say rejoice? Because rejoicing together is the balm in Gilead. When people come together to rejoice together, it's imperative that they be together in worship. They rejoice together. What would it be like if we were just on our own? We never met. We're just, we're just Christians. There's no such thing as church meetings on Sunday mornings and Bible studies and people getting together and fellowship. None of that. You just live your life as a Christian and that's it. Now that can't happen. God never set it up that way. That's not His design. But if it did, wouldn't that be lonely? You know, we don't know how much we depend upon others. And boy, when a need comes up, it's great to be able to have brothers and sisters in Christ who care for you, pray for you, say uplifting, edifying things, and it helps you get through life. I mean, that's the way God designed it and it works that way. I can say it works, doesn't it? Every one of us here could say that over and over again. Together. And we rejoice. So, we we did the Philippians 4.4. We did the 1 Thessalonians 5.16. In the fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians chapter 5, it says, here are the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. There it is again. It's just everywhere. He said, I thought Christians were supposed to be dour, kind of sour kind of people, kind of dull. (laughs) We have the market on rejoicing. We, Christians, alone, 
Nobody else. Yeah, people have some good times out there. But you notice how that kind of stuff can be up and down. It can be for moments. It can be for a couple of uh, hours, a couple of days, a week vacation, you know. But it doesn't last. Except if you have Christ, He says always, doesn't He? Every moment. So we really do have every reason to rejoice. First uh, Peter 4.13 I think it's a great promise, as it's a command too. I mean, he, he gives this gift of it. Boy, I tell you, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I think sometimes we take it for granted or forget about it. That's easy. Here he says something here that sounds really, really strange. Peter's writing it. He says, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, what does he say? Keep on what? Being mad at God. Really sad. No, he says, keep on rejoicing. So that, look at the motive, also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. We rejoice now, but there's a rejoicing that's coming later, folks, that I don't have the English vocabulary to describe it. Right, and we know this. It's always a motivation. It seems like every week, I always speak about that motivation. Because if you don't feel and experience it now, even though that rejoicing still is to be there, if you don't experience and feel it now, believe me, it is coming. When you have something to shoot for, you know you're running in a marathon, and boy, eventually, you know you can hit the, the wall. You can get to a point where, you know. You, you can't go any further, or if you do, it, it's just by sheer madness. <laughs> you just keep on going. And the Christian life can be that way sometimes. As you get older, all these things seem to come against, and you just keep on going. John 15, verse 11. John fifteen, eleven. These things I have spoken to you. Who's speaking? Jesus Christ. Why? Why did He speak these things? So that my joy, Christ's joy, may be in you. When is He saying this? This is the night before He's going to suffer at His peak at the cross. The night before... Does He know it? Yeah. And He says, I want to give you My joy so that your joy, your joy may be made full. Wow. John 16, verse 22. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. When is this? Well, it's still the same night. It's still the same words that he's giving. He's saying, I'm going to come back. So, in John 14, you get it, John 15, John 16, John 17, and this is his prayer. He's by himself because the disciples went to sleep. What does he, what does he do? John 17, 13. 
But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world. He's praying to the Father, so that they may have that they may have my joy made full in themselves. He's already told them that. Now he tells the Father that, and it's something that the Father already knows. It's something that the Son already knows. Why does he pray it? Because it's true. So when you pray things from the Scripture, you're always going to be right. Because it's the Father's will. And then you pray things that you're not so sure what the Father's will is, and you say, nevertheless, your will be done. We pray for things that we think that we know that are right. We don't know how the Lord's going to work it out. Right? So we just keep praying for we know what, what would be right. Jesus prayed for us right here. Folks, we get to peer in on that chapter and see and experience what He is actually talking to the Father. I mean, this is as private as it could be. You have the triune God involved and we get to get in on this prayer. Incredible. That He would reveal this to us. And He was praying that their joy, our joy, would be made full. So when He says, as a command, rejoice... Again, I say rejoice and always pray. He would be praying rejoice and commanding rejoice. It's right, isn't it? Because Jesus prayed for it. So therefore, that's what we are to do. I think that's incredible. We should be joyful all the time. It starts with the fact that you look at the cross, you see your sins are forgiven. We are, we are people here that come this morning and, and we realize our sins are forgiven. And we can come before the Father and we can come before His people. We can feel very guilty. Our past, those dealt with, it's been done. Our present is under the power and control of the Holy Spirit. And our future is totally secure in the promise of God. Why can't we rejoice, Right? The surface can look very rough. Oh, it can look really rough. It feels rough. It is rough. There's no doubt about it. There may be a storm. Or, this morning you wake up, beautiful sunshine, it's not scalding you. You go outside and you sit or just look up at the blue sky. You have a little bit of a breeze coming out of the north and it just feels just absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this day. But every day, no matter what, we say that. But isn't it nice to have some things that actually just give you all sorts of comfort, even on the outside, you know, physically? Nice to see and feel those kind of things. It's good. It's great. But there may be a storm that could come along too. But the deal is, as he says, rejoice always. And so whenever the times are when we don't feel like rejoicing, here's the deal. We have a deep down confidence in us. No matter what has just happened, we still have the confidence in our Lord because we live by faith. And to anybody else that's not a Christian, they're not going to understand that. They're not going to feel it. They may be able to see it in your countenance. They say, "What's what's the matter, man? This should really be driving you crazy. This should drive you into the doldrums." Well, maybe it has, but I still know my confidence is in Christ. So, 
Why become worried about anything? Well, humanly, I, I know what it is to, to be worried. We know that. But we also know that God is in control of everything. Is worry a sin? Yeah. Anxiety? Actually, it is. What about struggles? What about that? What about the struggle? What about economic difficulties? Anybody ever had that? <laughs> what about the loss of a job? Had that? What about disappointment in our careers? We've come up to a point in our life when we're on the backside of life. Sometimes it doesn't even look like there's been much of there anyway. What about that? What about those disappointments? What about broken friendships? What about broken families? A lot of us have been there. What about anything? Anything that comes up again. Does anybody identify with any of those things? <laughs> Absolutely. That's part of life. Whether you're Christian or non-Christian, it says, oh, well, I thought it was just Christians who suffer then. No. They all suffer. The difference is, who do you depend upon when it comes out to time to cry to God? Right? It is this, folks. Rejoicing is this joy. And it just bubbles over because of that deep down confidence that we have in Him. And when it bubbles up, we rejoice because we see truth. It's a response to the character of God. Folks, I want to tell you, you can rejoice because of good theology. It's not just a matter of the mind, but I'm telling you, it is what you know and who you know because of what you read and study and you hear and you listen to. You have rejoicing because of your theology, your study of God, your knowing God. This is life that we know God. That's eternal life to know Him, to experience Him, to know Him. It's because of how you think about who He is. How do you develop those thoughts? In the Word of God. It's your theology. What's formed here? And so when it comes down to that day, when you need Him the most, and it's every day, it's every moment, every breath, isn't it? We need Him the most. But whenever He has a particular time to wake us up, We have to think of Scripture. We have to think of who He is, what He's about, what He's promised. Lord, it doesn't look like anything's in in sync here. Everything's going crazy. It's wild. It's out of structure. Things have just gone nuts. Is that what's happening out in the world? You bet. It's nuts, isn't it? It's crazy. Absolutely lunatic. Well, it should because the world doesn't depend on God the worldly system. But if one knows God, they have this joy. They not feel like it at the time. Matter of fact, you could be grieving. And that's when we still rejoice, maybe even the most. Because we have nothing to put our trust in but God and we know it's true. That can only come from God. I mean, we can read it. We can hear it. I can say it all I want, but I can never force that into you. I can never force it into myself. But it's God's Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Boy, to be rated right after love, that's a pretty incredible thing, isn't it? How many times do you see about 
joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Boy, does that make sense? Is this practical stuff? This is why Paul says this here. This is why you look at this last section of 2 Corinthians and you go, oh wow, they just have a few verses here and it just goes bang, bang, bang. You know, this looks like about a five-minute message here today. All of a sudden, we've spent half the time on this one word. But it is a blessing, isn't it? And this is the key word I wanted to focus on. I need to be reminded of that. So I just wanted to share it with you. Is that okay? We need it, don't we? We need it. The next one is a review. It's a review of last week. I'm going to kind of be sad about leaving a friend here, Second Corinthians. My friend is always living next door, though I can always pick this up. <laughs> be made complete. That sound like last week? Verse 9. And you notice there's a word that we just looked at. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This also we pray for, that you be made complete. Pray that you have joy. Pray that you be made complete. And that's the same word that we we dealt with before. Carter Tidzo. It means to to mend nets, to to fix a broken bone, to bring something in order, to fit together, to mend back. That's the idea of that word. And we'll not spend so much time on it this time because we did last week. That was our theme. It it just dominated Paul's thinking right here at the end of it. That's why he ministered as he did. As he gave the Gospel and they became saved, then his next thing was is that they would be made whole. They'd be complete. Does that dominate his thinking? Does it dominate our thinking? Do we want to be made complete? Whole? Absolutely. Do we want others to be made whole? Yeah. If they're not being made whole, then how do you feel about it? You feel kind of sad. Completeness, perfection, maturity. That's what He desired for the saints. The equipping of the saints for the work of service, Ephesians 4 says. The building up of the body of Christ till they become a mature man and woman. Till they reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Right? That's being made complete. First Corinthians one ten. Earlier letter. Now I exhort you, we're getting exhortations. He exhorted them on his very first letter in the very first part of the letter. I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you what? Be made complete. And the next one is going to be what we say next to in the same mind and in the same judgment. That we be made complete. That we would all be in the same agreement. That we'd be thinking the same. Now, that's the next uh, well, couple exhortations later. That we be made complete. You, you look in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. That's the very next book after Second Corinthians. 
Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you are a spiritual restore, Carter Tidzo, to bring them back together, to put in order, to restore <coughs> such a one in the spirit of gentleness. So, be made complete. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. So many times this word comes up. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. We all lack things. Carter Tidzo, be made complete. Our next one is be comforted. It's two ways to take that, and we'll go ahead and take it both ways because our translations, our English translations, uh, I think probably most are going to say comforted. Does that look what, with what you guys have? Be comforted? Does anybody have exhorted? Be exhorted? Probably not. Um, but it, it probably means that more than anything. The word is parakaleo, and you guys know what that means. Para alongside, kaleo, call, call alongside, paraclete, Holy Spirit, right? We know that. Um, comfort. And so that would be true. I think also it means to exhort or admonish. There are places with that. Be admonished. Be exhorted. Not only by me, but by other people in the church. Be exhorted. That's how uh, iron sharpens iron, right? Um, 1 Corinthians 4.14 Here's Paul using this word parakaleo as an exhortation. As that word exhortation. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. I'm not shaming you. I'm exhorting you. I'm admonishing you. I'm paracleting you, right? Paracleo. Colossians 1.28 It's good to have exhortations. One of them is rejoice. We're exhorted to rejoice. I like that exhortation. We're exhorted to be comforted, to be made complete. Those are good exhortations, aren't they? Um, Colossians 1.28 We proclaim Him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. There's our complete Christ. We admonish you. We proclaim, we admonish everybody. Teaching. So that's that word, parakaleo. It's actually a good word, isn't it? So the next, so what has he said? Rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, admonished, be like-minded. They sing these, not just throwing them out right here at the end, but each term means something to every one of them. The word is autophronate. Fron is dealing with the mind or thinking. Same thinking means to think the same thing. Mind, think, right? That's the idea. This should have been a tall order for the Corinthians. 
to be like-minded, to be thinking the same way, wouldn't you? You'd think that. Be of one mind. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean, hey, we have to agree on everything. There's going to be a lot of differences outside our faith that we're going to maybe disagree on or don't see necessarily the same way that somebody else sees. And it, it probably means neither here nor there. If it's dealing with morality or, or such things, and that can be another thing, but he means something like we should uh, be at the point that uh, of, of unity. There are essentials. It's essential to believe in the basics of the faith, right? We start with that. And then we become more and more mature in the Word together through our teachings and our beliefs that we hold together, that we hold the same truths together there. It's uh, it's a plea to conform to the truth. That's what it is, to the very truth of the Word of God. Get in line with the Word of God. Uh, Christ doesn't have five different theologies, five different religions, does He? Christ had one theology. And so, we are to be aligned to what He thinks He says. Thinking the same thing. If He thought that, then I want to think that. And if everybody else is a believer, they're going to think the same thing. To have the same thoughts about who Christ is. The same thing about the character, the very nature of God the Father. um, The Holy Spirit. All the things concerning the truths of the gospel and such. Philippians 1.27 A great book dealing with how people are to think together. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of our gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're, all, we're a team, right? One faith, one gospel, one Lord, one baptism, right? One spirit here. Um, one truth. Chapter 2, verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. It's not saying, oh, let's just all get together and regardless, of, if they don't believe in the deity of Christ, it's okay because we are to be unified anyway. If they think of other religions and everything else, we are to be so loving and bring them in and say everything's okay. Hey, we all are going to the same God anyway, right? And we can't do that because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Right? He is the only way. And so, yeah, it's narrow when it comes to truth. It's, it's His truth. But we're to be united together in it. And that's what Jesus prayed for. We don't make peace. It's made by Him. He brings unity. He prayed for unity, that they be one. In John 17, He prayed for that. If that be the case, He's already prayed for that. That is His desire. But we can't make that happen. We are to maintain it though. If there is something out of joint, then yes, we are to be the ones to to put that in back in place. You get bone out of joint or something like that. You've got to put it back in place. And so, yeah, but, but that's all still in Christ. 
Now we go to the last exhortation here. And it says, live in peace. Now this can't be unless the other four are played out. If they're not thinking the same way, how can they have peace, right? One other place that he says it like this, live in peace, and Paul exhorts a church here to pursue what leads to peace. Romans 14.19 This is a really key word because evidently there were times where they didn't have peace there in the Corinthian church. So he says, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Not tearing down, but peace. That's what we do. Matter of fact, the very next verse, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food, for instance. Those gray areas, somebody eats something and all of a sudden another person is offended and you know, all of a sudden things start getting out of joint. Uh, you can have legalisms come in or you can have the, the other way, way too much freedom, just abusing it, right? And this, what is that word? Balance? <laughs> brought that forth. So, there it is. The key to living in peace is having the same thoughts, pursuing peace. So key, isn't it? Okay, now we go back to our 2 Corinthians. We've looked at the exhortations. There were reasons why he said this. Be be joyful, be complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And here's the results. And this is amazing. They're not so much living in peace so much. But actually, by the time he got there, I think they were. But he says this. After he says, live in peace. And then he says this. And the God of love and peace will be with you. That's a promise. What's he saying here? He says here that you will know the fullness of of blessings that God has for you. If you're living in peace, the God of peace blesses that. I'm at peace with this, right? God has blessed you. The God of love and peace. What was a problem in Corinth? Paul had to keep telling them to love one another. To have peace. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about what? Love. (laughs) That chapter is to a church where they need to be instructed on what love is, where it comes from. The God of love. The God of peace. They really needed that. And the love does come from God. As the church pursues wholeness to be complete, the church will express joy and a desire for the truth, be committed to the truth. The power of God flourishes then. The God of love. The God of love is with you. Did you know that that's the only time this phrase is in the the New Testament here? The God of love? You can say, well, sure He is. What do you mean? Well, just that phrase is the God of love. Now we see that God is love. We see so many other passages. The God of love. He is love, isn't He? 
He embodies that. That's who He is. He is light. He is truth. He is joy. He just doesn't take these principles and instill them in His life. That is who He is. That's uh, quite a thought. God is love. The God of love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, a whole section there. I won't read all the section. 1 John 4, 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. comes from Him. That's the source. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So, if one who's considered to be one who has love actually has that love from God. He knows God. It means he's a believer. If you have love, it means you're a believer. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. How can you not love if you have God and not love others, right? John makes it really simple and concise and clear. If you love others, then you got that from God. By this, the love of God has manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, God loved. What a result. He's the God of peace. So we we know where love is from, obviously. But he's you know, it will manifest in our lives if we follow those exhortations that he just gave. He says, if you do these things, this will follow up in your life. Don't you like that promise? If you rejoice, be made complete, if you're comforted, if you're like minded. Peace of God, if you live in peace, the God of love and peace will be with you. The God of peace, that's found in many places. Romans 15, verse 33. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. The God of peace. Chapter 16, verse 20, Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. There you have peace and grace together. The God of peace. But He's going to war to defeat the enemy, Satan. Because He's creating all sorts of havoc with the saints, isn't He? Boy, is He doing that. Seems to just go on sometimes. God of peace. He's going to soon come back and crush all of His works. And He will give peace then in the kingdom. He will have peace. Satan will not be ruling there. The God of peace soon crush Satan under your feet. What a promise, huh? Hebrews 13.20 Do you have peace? Aren't these great promises? Hebrews 13.20 We need to hear these. 
Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, closes out there and says, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us through that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. To me the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a tremendous way to end there. But then he says, oh, but I urge you, brethren. But he says, now, the God of peace. By the way, you know who the God of peace is? He's the one that came up from the dead and He's your shepherd. He feeds you. He takes care of you. He's always protecting and guiding you. He's the great shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. Did you just get a promise? Doesn't that bring peace to you when the great shepherd is guiding us right right here and right now and always? He says, if you practice these things and enjoy the fullness of love and peace, His presence is really going to be felt in your individual life and in your church. But if you don't practice those things, He will withdraw the manifestation, experience of that love and peace, and He can bring on chastening. Paul didn't want to see that in Corinth. He wanted to see this love and peace, and he says the God of peace will rule there. Right? 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, May God Himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. We're sanctified by this God of peace. So go back to 2 Corinthians. We're getting ready to close this out real quick here now. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Here's affection. He says, the God of peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. What's a holy kiss? Well, it's common in the ancient Near East to greet one another with a kiss. Man to man, woman to woman was that custom. And it's even present today in cultures today outside of the United States. We've seen where foreigners do that. It's Heads of state and such will kiss each other on the cheek and such. They're demonstrating an affection there. Uh, it's an endearing kind of term. It's you know, all the power of an embrace. All the power of a hug. Sometimes somebody just needs a hug. They need somebody a pat on the shoulder or something like that. It's it's very endearing, isn't it? It's it's to say, hey, listen, good to see you, or how are you doing. Hey, I'm with you, brother. You know, those kind of things, it's it's really helpful. Brother Little Love just shared amongst people. We could look in other texts. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.26, 1 Corinthians 16.20, Romans 16.16, 16, 1 Peter 5.14. You get the same thing. Greet each other with a holy kiss. It's, it's more than just uh, some kind of a custom, cultural thing. It's more than just any physical touch. He knew that there was conflict in the church. If there be conflict, he would love to see them come together with this peace and then even show it outwardly. It's just breaking down and then showing that you have 
you have care for a, a, another. There were factions against each other, fragmented. It was rather disconcerting. So this was a very endearing way for them to do that. Make visible, demonstrate that sign of restoration. That's why he would say, greet one another with a holy kiss. We, we might do it with a handshake. Might do it with coming up there and like I say, you know, grabbing somebody on the shoulder or what have you. Uh, so that's, that's what he's talking about there. It can break down barriers and he knows that. People still do it today. So that you know, handshakes, touching somebody, or just just being there. Uh, all the saints greet you. Paul is writing, and he says, "Oh, by the way," and he's probably at Philippi when he writes this letter to the Corinthians. That's probably where he's at. They know he's writing to them, and and they say, "Hey, tell them carete, right? A greeting." Saints who were with him, all the saints greet you. So he communicates their affection in a verbal embrace, just saying a, a, a word. And we go to the last verse. This is an awesome, magnificent benediction. This seems to be rather theological. And it is, but it's much more than a just some kind of theological treatise. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's it. Boy, what a grand way to finish it up. I mean, he has crescendoed, hit the apex, one more shot, and it's dealing with the absolute perfect unity of the triune being of God. It's the Trinity in one verse. You see God the Father, you see God the Son, you see God the Holy Spirit. For those who do not believe in the Trinity, I will make this statement, anybody who does not believe in a triune God in the Orthodox way is not a Christian. Because they don't know the character of God. They would say that Jesus is not God. How can they? Or they would say, yeah, Jesus is God, but the Holy Spirit is... God the Father then, it's, he's, in some, he's in the mode of person of Christ now, but uh, Father doesn't exist until He moves into that mode of being the Father. Now the Son is really not... Just all sorts of thinking in the mind. And we can come up with all sorts of illustrations. But the thing is, our finite mind cannot go and understand something that our minds cannot comprehend of infinity, of eternality. All we know is we have to believe this, that the Father exists, the Son exists, Holy Spirit exists. And He says this in this magnificent benediction. And there's definitely a systematic structure here of this Trinity. But He isn't just teaching the Trinity here. We can definitely see that no one in the Trinity is slighted because the Father's there, the Son's there, the Holy Spirit is there, aren't they? 
most often we won't usually see that. We'll see the Father and the Son in one verse. Or you'll see the Holy Spirit. Sometimes very near each other, maybe a verse apart. All three of them will there. Very much so. Put on your triune glasses, right? See the Trinity as you look through Scripture. But here you don't have to look very hard. It's there just staring at us. There are many places in the Bible where the, the Trinity is demonstrated to us. Uh, you have Trinity in the Bible right off the bat in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. Right? Think of God the Father. Well, we also see that the Holy Spirit is brooding over the waters and He's creating as God the Father is creating. And we see that in Colossians, Jesus is the Creator. In John 1, He's the Creator. Each member of the Trinity is Creator. We see at Jesus' baptism the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, that sounds familiar, isn't it? When we experience uh, a baptism, uh, I think it's in Matthew 4 4. There you have Jesus present, obviously. It's in uh, Matthew 3. Verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and a lightning lighting on Him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Who do you see here? Well, Christ is present. He's the Son. So if there's a Son, S-O-N, who's speaking? The Father. And the Holy Spirit is there. The Spirit of God descending as a dove, lighting on And He's there. They're all there. It's not modes. I would have difficulty explaining that if I believed in modal Trinitarianism. That belief is quite popular amongst some of the TV preachers of our day. T.D. Jake's one of those. That's false teaching. I consider him not a brother in Christ because of that. I never can unless he were to admit that. And then there are other theologies that he has that totally goes against Christ. But he is considered one of the spokesmen for Christian the Christian realm today. It's sad. The Trinity is a basic fundamental of the faith. We can't disagree upon that. The church settled that back in the very early days of it. Anybody that did not consider the triune God, they were considered cultic outside the realm of the church. That's why our belief system, the church that is so endeared historically, has always fought for that. There's a united Pentecostal church down around is that East High, McCarty, and uh, they would believe in modalism. They would deny the Trinity in the way that the Scripture teaches it. I would say they would have difficulty with some of these verses we've just looked at. And they do have difficulty. They can explain it. 
doesn't jive with the passages. They need to know Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, go on and on. Any cult will deny the Trinity. I don't know of one cult that would believe in the Trinity. I don't know of one cult that would say that Jesus is God. Holy Spirit, He's a force. Or it's not He. They would say it. It's a force. Holy Spirit is He. Many times the Scripture says that. So just some reminders of this. I know you all know it. But uh, that's very near and dear to us. And so that's a good verse to use if you ever need that. If somebody says, well, I don't believe in the Trinity because the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Right? How about the Great Commission? Matthew 28. Again, Trinity. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's not one person. That's three persons. One God, three persons, and the way the Greek text is set up, it can only be that and nothing. I love that rule. In the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. When we baptize, we say that. It's not just a formula. It's something that is saying something. This is in the whole triune God for who He is. It's very clear. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says here in the text, that's what saved me. And how did that happen? Well, it was the love of God that started that. So he says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. We are recipients of the grace of Christ as He did His work on the cross. We receive God's love. That's what started Christ's grace. And then we receive the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who comes and resides in each one of us and in the body of Christ all throughout. We are brought into the fellowship of the body of Christ. The grace of the Lord Jesus. Grace. It's His first move to secure our salvation. It's Christ's grace. Did you know you can take grace and make an acronym? You guys might have heard of this before. G, God. God's... I put apostrophe S. R, riches. God's riches. Next one is A, at. The next one is C for Christ. God's riches at Christ's expense. There's your grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, what He gave up. The name of the Lord, their grace of the Lord, that represents His deity, His Godhood. This is redemption here. It comes from the gracious favor of Jesus Christ. Boy, we've been having some very uplifting things this morning, haven't we? He was graciously willing to die at the cross because of the love of God. And His love set all that in motion. It's the grace of Christ, the 
fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes in and lives in us. He ushers into the fellowship of the church. Amazing. We participate in the fellowship of the Godhead. We are enabled because of that to have fellowship with one another. 1 John 1 says that we have fellowship with God and if we have fellowship with God that we will have fellowship with one another because of the Holy Spirit. Oh, the Word of God. You just take it verse by verse, word by word. Does it speak to you? Does it give you great comfort? Does it give you great exhortation? Does it give you great hope? Paul saying, I pray for your perfection, your maturity, in order that the Word of God, the will of God, take effect. That you would have affection for others, that there wouldn't be divisions and strife. There would be reconciliation of all the relationships. That you would know the fullness of the riches of the best that God can give because of His redemption. So, we look at this verse 14. What better way to end this letter than pointing to the perfect model of congregational unity? The church didn't have the unity that needed to be there. There was something lacking. And what does Paul use? The triune God. There is where we see absolute, total, perfect unity in every way. Never a disagreement ever or will there ever be a disagreement. That's hard to imagine too, isn't it? The unity of the Father, the unity of the Son, the unity of the Holy Spirit. Exclamation point. This is more than a theological flourish here. Christ's grace, God's love, Holy Spirit's fellowship, that is practical. This comes to life in our own lives. Christ's gift of Himself. Do you experience that? In the most concrete terms, God's love for us, the Spirit's power to come in and form us and fashion us and make us all one. And what that does is gives a big beacon of hope in a very fragmented, very broken up world. It's a broken world. We have this. Let the beacon, let the light shine. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this truth that You have given us in Your Word. As Paul gives the exhortations, finishes up with just absolute marvelous truth. Help us to look upon this triune God and see that kind of unity. And knowing that the Holy Spirit is the one who fellowships with us and He wants us individually to be made whole and as a body to be made whole more and more each and every day until the time of Christ. Thank You for the saints here, Lord. May they be edified and be built up today through Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.